Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13. After a couple of months, we're returning to uh, this wonderful Gospel. Chapter 13 forms a, a new section uh, in the Gospel. Uh, this text is marked out as a unit of teaching by Jesus. We can see that uh, by the introduction of, in the opening verses there, as well as the statement uh, that sort of sums it up uh, that you can see down in verse 53 of the text. And it's also marked out uh, by the uh, misunderstanding of Jesus' family that we see in the end of chapter 12 and his rejection by his hometown in the, in the scene following this uh, section of teaching or this discourse. Uh, so that's, that's a unit. We're only going to look at part of that, of course, today because there's so much in it. Uh, but think of that as a unit of, of text. This is the third of five major teaching uh, sections that Matthew gives us. He's obviously very consciously organized his gospel this way so that the public ministry of Christ, his record of the public ministry of Christ is marked by these five teachings or discourses. Uh, interestingly, this is, the, this is the only one that is specifically addressed to crowds, we'll see in the beginning. He addresses disciples later on in the chapter as well. Uh, but the other teachings uh, were primarily directed to the disciples, although, of course, there are obviously other people listening as well. So in some ways, this is sort of uh, focused on in the organization of Matthew's gospel, and it, and it serves as a, a pivot point as well. Uh, I want you to notice as we try to look at the meaning of the text that, that this third of the five shows, a, well, it's part of a marked shift in, in the movement of Jesus' ministry. Uh, Jesus is always in control of what's happening in his life. That's really astounding when you stop to think about the fact that by this time in his ministry, he's having to manage crowds of hundreds of people, as well as deal with animosity and hostility from some of the, the leaders of, of his culture of that day. Uh, he's always in control, but he shifts he shifts his approach here, I think, significantly, and we want to we take note of that as we uh, look more carefully at this text. So let me read uh, verses 1 through 17, and then I'm going to skip down and add verses uh, 34 and 35 to this reading as well, because that's going to tie in with what we see in the first 17 verses. So let's hear this uh, portion of God's word. This is God's word to his people. He is speaking to his people even today through it. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered around him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. 
But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. And moving down to verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The significance of this, uh, of this section is shown in that we, we see parallel accounts of this in both Mark and Luke. And in fact, we, we see the quotation from Isaiah. Remember that Isaiah passage we looked at for the past two Sundays? We see quotations that, that match that Isaiah passage, not only in those other accounts of the synoptics, but, but also in the Gospel of John and in the book of Acts. So that obviously there's a very significant, uh, significant lesson for us to glean here. So let's be careful to listen to it as Jesus has urged us to do. Now, although this is a new section, you probably already noticed that that first verse in chapter 13 clearly links it with the previous chapter. See, that, that same day. Now, the gospel writers, and indeed biblical writers in general, don't always follow a strict chronology. They're much more thematic in the way that they put their books together and the way they write, and that's true for Matthew, too. So when he tells us that same day, we should assume there's something significant about that. In fact, if, if you take some time and do some research and look at the Synoptic Gospels, uh, this day that Matthew is referring to is, is often called the busy day. <laughs> the busy day. And not because Jesus wasn't busy other days. Because undoubtedly, he, he, is, he is being pushed 
physically uh, by his ministry at this point with, with so much to deal with. He obviously is a man of great physical stamina uh, to deal with what he's doing, but, but every day really is probably as packed as this day is. We just aren't told as much about them. And in fact, we're not told everything about this day either. I'm sure there's much more that could be said. You, know, you notice it says he gave them many parables. We have four that he gives the crowd, four that he gives his disciples. But uh, Matthew says he, he gave many parables. Uh, so we're, we're just getting part of it, but the part of this day that we get is enough to give us a sense of an incredible crowded schedule that he has and so many things on his agenda. And again, he, he's always in control. And we're going to see him shift, shift his focus at this pivotal point. If you glance back at chapter 12, that we looked at a couple of months ago, so it's uh, some time right now, we, we noticed when we were looking at chapter 12 that, that there is a shift happening in the public perception of Jesus, and especially in what the religious leadership, the powers that be, think of him during that time. And so we, we noticed in the first part of chapter 12, there's what was called the Sabbath con controversy. It's interesting that it's over the observance of the Sabbath. That seems to be the flashpoint in many ways for the conflict that Jesus has. And so we, we saw him in dispute with the uh, Pharisees who are accusing him of allowing his disciples to violate the Sabbath, and he corrected the Pharisees then with a correct understanding of the Sabbath. Uh, but that, that led then to his, his time in a synagogue where he heals a man on the Sabbath, uh, a man who had a crippled hand. And, and since the Pharisees uh, considered only life-threatening medicine permissible on the Sabbath, it, they, they set that up as a test for Jesus. And when Jesus heals the man, that intensifies their reaction. He's now not only contradicted their teaching about the Sabbath, he has, he has done it, he has demonstrated that right in front of people in a place of worship, the synagogue. And those synagogues were the strongholds of the Pharisees. And they go out of there determined to destroy him, we saw in chapter 12. And, and notice the shift then that we see in verse 15 of chapter 12. Jesus, aware of this, that is aware that they wanted to destroy him, withdrew from there. there. He, he deliberately takes a path in a sense of non-confrontation here. Jesus never pursues confrontation for the sake of confrontation. Okay? Uh, he, he's, he, he's not going to, to try to lord it over people in the way that the world does. And, and so he, he purposely withdraws. We see his ministry shifting more and more now out of synagogues and into the open air, into the streets and byways. And so he withdraws. Many people follow him. We're told there in verse 12, and it says, he, and he ordered them not to make him known. He, he, again, is not seeking controversy for the sake of controversy. He's come to do the will of the Father. And so Matthew quotes from Isaiah there, beginning in verse 18. 
of chapter 12, and, and he says this is to fulfill the image of the Messiah that Isaiah gave us there, one who has the Spirit of God on him, one who proclaims justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Okay, he's not calling attention to himself. Rather, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. The Gentiles, those outside of Israel, those outside of the covenant, the ones looked down upon by the Pharisees. So he's purposely avoiding some kind of political confrontation with them. But of course, they don't want to let it go. And so beginning in chapter 20, uh, verse 22 of chapter 12, we have the beginning of this day that Matthew refers to at the beginning of chapter 13. And it begins, you'll remember, thinking back to what we studied on this, this chapter, it, it, it brings to a climax the hatred of the Pharisees for Jesus. They, 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 they've already purposed to destroy him. And so they, in a sense, put feet to that by beginning to attack him in, in the worst way possible. You remember there in chapter 12, they can't deny the fact that he cast out demons. It, Jesus' enemies never challenged the fact that he performed miracles. I mean, he, he, they couldn't deny it. It was right there in front of them. So they can't deny the miracle of his casting out the demons from this poor man. But they say it's by the power of demons that he cast out demons. And that occasions that the most serious warning that Jesus gives in the course of his ministry, you're probably remembering it already, where he says, the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. He's warning them, you are, you are crossing a line from which there is no return. That they've become so callous that they're calling evil good and good evil. That's what's happening. And so Jesus very seriously warns them. And we read about his characterization of his generation as a generation that is worse than those pagans in Nineveh. They repented at Jonah's preaching. Now, don't miss the significance of what he's saying there. Here's the test for whether you receive the message of Jesus. Do you repent? Do you repent? This generation is going to be judged as worse than those pagans in Nineveh because the pagans in Nineveh repented when Jonah preached. And this generation is rejecting someone greater than Jonah. And we notice at the end of chapter 12, even his family doesn't understand what's going on. So all that then is the background 
to what begins to happen right now in chapter 13. Jesus goes out of the house that was mentioned at the end of chapter 12 there. He goes down to the seaside. This is probably close to the city of Capernaum that he made his home after he left Nazareth and began his, his earthly ministry. We don't know if the house uh, belonged to someone else or perhaps he rented it. We don't know. It could be that it was Peter's house or one of the disciples' house. But he, he goes out of the house after uh, the events at the close of chapter 12 there. And the great crowds follow him, and he sits down. Now, sitting is the customary position for a teacher in this culture. Uh, we've sort of reversed it. Okay, I'm standing, and you're sitting. But if we were in Jesus' day, I'd be sitting, and you all would be standing. <laughs> so, so already we've got this clue that Matthew is giving us that Jesus is ready to teach. But... Because of the press of the crowd, these hundreds of people, he, he steps into a boat so he can move offshore a little bit. So he's got some space from the crowd, and that probably enables him also to be heard uh, more clearly by people. There's a cove uh, just to the uh, south and west of Capernaum that's been identified as the Cove of the Parables. And that the land there sort of forms a natural amphitheater. We don't know for sure that Jesus was there. But it was some arrangement like that where the, the crowd is on the shore and he's speaking from the boat. And he speaks to them with many parables. Now, what's a parable? We think of a parable, most likely you think of a parable as, as a story. And most of, the, most of the sections that we read in the New Testament that speak of a parable are that, but, but not always. Uh, for instance, uh, Luke chapter 6, verse 39, Jesus also told them a parable. Here's the parable, just a couple of sentences. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? Uh, in the book of Hebrews, uh, the uh, offering of Abraham of his son Isaac and then receiving him back, not having to offer him because the Lord's provided a ram, that, that's said to be a parable of his resurrection. So, so think a little bit more broadly. A parable is, is indirect speech. Now you, we saw Jesus doing a lot of direct speech, for instance, in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, he's doing straight teaching. Now, he does close that sermon with what we could probably characterize as a parable, but he very clearly gives the meaning for it right there. Remember, he says, whoever hears my word and does them is like a man who builds his house on a rock. Okay, remember that? that we could say that's a parable, but he's given the meaning of it even before he tells the story. So it, it's an indirect statement Using concrete imagery, common things that people would have experienced in life, would be familiar with. Everybody's familiar with building a house and knows the difference between building it on a rock and building it on a sand. Jesus, in this parable in chapter 13 that we read, is talking about the sowing of a field. This is a very familiar image to these people. They've seen it hundreds of times. They see it every year all around them. So it's a, a concrete 
story. It's an imagery using concrete images to convey spiritual truth. Okay? So it might be a story. It might be a brief statement like some of these others. But, but the essence is you're given a concrete image, something that you can see in the real world, and you draw a spiritual truth from it. That's, that's the essential definition of a parable. And, and in a sense, okay, Matthew is giving us this parable here in chapter 13, this first one, as a paradigm for all of Jesus' parables. We'll see that it becomes, interpreting this parable becomes a pattern that we can use for interpreting parables where he doesn't give the interpretation. So, Jesus tells this story, and of course, you've heard it so many times, you already know what it means, okay? Uh, it sounds very plain to you, probably. But I want you to put yourself in the, in the place of this crowd of people, okay? At all you have heard is just Jesus describing the planting and reaping process that you see every day. And then he gives this weird saying at the end. He who has ears, let him hear. Well, everybody there has got ears. <laughs> and if they didn't have the ears, if they couldn't hear him, then what good would it do for him to tell them to hear? So what he's he's already he's already communicating the truth that there's a deeper meaning here. I just told you this story. But if you hear hear in a deeper sense, then you get my point. Well, how are they going to do that? <laughs> and so the disciples come to him. Now, it's possible that, that Matthew has moved this interchange in verses uh, 10 and following between Jesus and the disciples, that he's moved that up in the narrative. Remember, he doesn't always follow chronology exactly. Okay, because after this passage that we read, Jesus is going to tell three more parables to the crowd. Then we're going to see him talking with the disciples. So it's possible that this actually happens after he's been before the crowds. But Matthew's moving it up here because he wants us to get the point right away. He wants, to, wants us to know why Jesus is doing this. Why is he speaking in parables? Now, we'd be tempted to say, because we know the parables so well, We've grown up in church and Sunday school. Well, he's using parables so people can understand. But Jesus says, no, it's just the opposite. It's just the opposite. Look again at, at, at what he says. You really need to understand this to understand what's happening with parables. Look at verse 11. Here's why I teach in parables, he says. Because to you, that is my disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The word there in Greek is actually transliterated into mystery. And so some English translations say mysteries here. But, but it's not really a mystery like we tend to use that term today. Uh, so it's a little better to say secrets here because that's the idea being conveyed. The idea of a secret that has been revealed to you. You've got 
the secret, he says. It's been given to you. So don't get the idea he's saying, but this is a mystery you have to figure out. No, he's saying it's being handed to you, the meaning. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given, the crowds. For to the one who has, that would be the disciples who have been given the secret, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, the crowds who have not been given the secret, even what he has will be taken away. Harsh statement, isn't it? This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, and immediately are our memories go back to that scene in Isaiah chapter 6, don't we? It's clear already what Jesus is referring to. And you remember that scene where Isaiah has a vision of God's holiness. And he's overwhelmed by that vision. And he cries out in repentance, Woe is me. I am destroyed, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen... Yahweh of hosts. But in response to that confession of his sin, Isaiah is cleansed. He's, he receives forgiveness. He hears that word, your guilt has been atoned for. But you remember the commission that followed that, where God said, I need a volunteer to go. And Isaiah said, I'm the one, I'll go. And so God says, you're going to go to this people and you're going to say to them, keep on hearing, keep on hearing, keep on hearing, and don't understand. Keep on seeing, keep on seeing, keep on seeing, and don't perceive. Don't understand. Don't understand. And we looked at, at how it is that word of judgment came to be visited on those people. And it's because they had rejected their Lord. They had rejected their covenant God who had been faithful to them. They were unfaithful to him. And so Isaiah came with a word of judgment. So you're probably already ahead of me. You understand what Jesus is saying now. He's saying my generation, this generation, is just like that generation. In fact, he goes further than that, doesn't he, in the next verse. Indeed, in their case, that is, in the case of these people that I'm speaking parables to, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Now, notice here that prophetic words are often progressive in fulfillment. Okay, God said that word to Isaiah about the response he was going to get from the people. And they did exactly that, okay? They reject, they refuse to listen. Isaiah would tell them, plain right out, what they were supposed to do. And they wouldn't listen to him. And judgment fell on that generation. So in that sense, that word was fulfilled back there. But this prophecy of Isaiah, Jesus is saying, is being fulfilled even in a fuller sense now, in me, 
So look for that. When you see prophecies in the Old Testament, there's often a partial fulfillment in, in the history of Israel, but they're really leading you to Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's saying here. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. And look at what he says. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Jesus says that's exactly what you're seeing happen in front of your eyes. They have the truth presented to them, and they close their eyes. They don't want to see it. I speak the truth to them, and they close their ears. They don't want to understand. They don't want to hear it. They purposely misunderstand. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll see this, for instance, when, when Jesus says in, in the Gospel of John, uh, that he is the, the people are looking for manna. They're looking for him to be a miracle worker and provide bread for them. And, and so he says, I'm the bread from heaven. Why, why are you looking for stuff to food, fill your stomach? I'm the bread from heaven. And, and, they, and they play dumb. I, I mean, anybody could know he's not saying, I want you to take a chunk out of me and eat it. But, but that's what they say. Is, is he saying he's going to give us his body to eat? You know, they, they're playing stupid. They're refusing to see the spiritual truth. It's clear to him. He's saying, just as God provided the manna to your, you people, I'm being provided by God for them. But they refuse to understand. And judgment is going to fall. They could turn and be healed. But they will not. They will not. But there's another side. <laughs> okay. The bad news is that most people aren't going to listen. But the good news is there are some. Verse 17. But blessed are your eyes, for they see. And your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus would say on another occasion to Jewish leaders, Abraham saw my day. Abraham looked forward to my coming. Abraham would have loved to be here and see me. That's what he's saying. Isaiah would have, would have given anything to see the Messiah that he predicted, that he, was, that he was given a revelation of in chapter 9 and chapter 53 and, and other places in, in the book of Isaiah. He would have loved to see Jesus. That's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. You've got it. You've been given the seat. You've understood who I am. And that's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Christianity is a personal relationship. It's not an accumulation of knowledge. It's a personal relationship. Why do these people not want to hear, not want to see, not want to understand? Well, because, because they're rejecting Jesus. But there are those 
who will be awakened by the Spirit, like the disciples. What do the disciples do when they don't understand? I mean, they hear the story too. They can't make sense of it. Well, they come to Jesus, right? They come to Jesus. Peter will say, speaking for all of them, you have the words of life. So already he is, he is drawing people to himself in his earthly ministry. Do you see? Do you hear? Do you understand? If you do, then your response is repentance. Right? That's Jesus preaching. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. I'm here. You're a Lord. You're a Savior. Does the Spirit open your eyes to see that? Open your ears to hear that? Then you are blessed. You are blessed. You are blessed. I don't care what your circumstances are. Okay? I know some of you are in difficult places, but I don't care how difficult your place is. You are blessed if you have heard Jesus. If you have seen him. If you have heard the gospel that says, in repenting from your sins, you are given forgiveness in Christ. You are in a blessed place. Verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Shift in his teaching has been made. This was to fulfill what is spoken by the prophet. And he's quoting actually here from Psalm 72. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. In that psalm, the psalmist mourns over the unfaithfulness, the rejection of God by Israel. But he also, he also gives a message that God redeems his people, those who will hear him, those who will see him. That's our opportunity, okay? We have the opportunity every day to hear the Lord speaking through his word, to see him at work, and to respond with faith. If you do that, you've got the secret. And that's a secret to be shared, isn't it? To be proclaimed around, just like Jesus proclaimed the gospel. Let's ask the Lord to help us to do that. Only Father, we're grateful that you have opened blind eyes, that you have unstopped deaf ears, that you have awakened dead hearts to see the truth of your gospel. Lord, there's, there's nothing that we did to deserve your doing that. So we can only respond with gratitude and praise, thanksgiving for your graciousness and your mercy to us. Help us to 
to realize anew the preciousness of this gift, how wonderful it is to know the secret of sins forgiven and lives returned to the Lord. Help us to live in light of that this week. May we offer back to you our time, our talents, the decisions that we make, our relationships with others. May we, may we seek to glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.